We're going to be talking about faith this morning. Seems appropriate, being faithful people. Um, And there are lots of different passages in the Bible that speak to faith. There's lots of different um, stories, of course, peppered through the Bible that speak to faith and that encourage us and and define faith to us. But I want to use an illustration this morning before I begin that for me really speaks of, of faith. And I realize now that I've been preaching for a while because it dawned on me that I've used this illustration before. Um... But I'm going to use it again because it's really, really good. This illustration on faith comes from C.S. Lewis's book, The Silver Chair, the sixth book in the Chronicles of Narnia. And in The Silver Chair, we have this story of these two children who are whisked into the land of Narnia, and they join forces with Puddleglum, the Marsh Wiggle, probably C.S. Lewis's best character he's ever written in the Chronicles of Narnia. Puddleglum is by far the best, in my opinion. Puddleglum and the children are tasked with finding the lost prince of Narnia. And through a series of adventures, they find themselves in the underland, this this underground kingdom that's run by the Lady of the Green Kirtle, also known as Jadis, who we know as the White Witch from the uh, line The Witch in the Wardrobe. She's changed her colors, but she's still the same. And in this, um, there's this account where they're all in the same room, <clears throat> and the witch begins to enchant Puddleglum and the two children and the prince. She's playing her, her mandolin. There's a heavy incense in the air. And what she's beginning to do is she's beginning to have them um, cast doubt on their belief of Narnia and the overworld and everything that they know is true. She's beginning to get them to, to doubt that. And so they say, well, we know that we've seen the sunshine. We believe that we've seen the sunshine. And she says, no, 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 in a very sweet voice. Don't you understand? The sun is just like a lamp. So you can see how you've imagined something bigger, but really it's just the lamp that we have here in the underworld. There's no such thing as as the sun. And and as they struggle, they they finally um, shout out, but we believe in Aslan, the great lion. Aslan is C.S. Lewis's messianic figure all throughout these, these chronicles. And they say, we believe in Aslan, the great lion. And she says, no, no, don't you understand? Aslan is just like a cat. And and a cat is really all it is. So you can understand how you've imagined something bigger, but really, there's no such thing as Aslan. There's just a little thing as a cat, just like there is a lamp. And finally, Puddleglum has had enough. And he stomps on the fire that's causing the heavy incense to go. And I'm going to read what happens next. With his bare foot, he stamped on the fire, grinding a large part of it into ashes on the flat hearth, and three things happened at once. First, the sweet, heavy smell grew very much less, for though the whole fire had not been put out, a good bit of it had, and what remained smelled very largely of burnt marsh wiggle, which is not at all an enchanting smell. This instantly made everyone's brain far clearer. The prince and the children held up their heads again and opened their eyes. Secondly, the witch, in a loud, terrible voice, utterly different from all the sweet tones that she had been using up till now, called out, What are you doing? Dare to touch my fire again, mud filth, and I'll turn the blood to fire inside your veins. And thirdly, the pain itself made Puddleglum's head for a moment perfectly clear, and he knew exactly what he really thought. There is nothing like a good shock of pain for dissolving certain kinds of magic. Good to remember. And here's what Puddleglum says. One word, ma'am, he said, coming back from the fire, limping because of the pain. 
one word. All you've been saying is quite right. I shouldn't wonder. I'm a chap who always liked to know the worst and then put the best face I can on it. So I won't deny any of what you've said, but there's one thing more to be said even so. Suppose we have only dreamed or made up all of these things, trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and Aslan himself. Suppose we have. Then all I can say is that, in that case, the made-up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. Suppose this made-up, or sorry, suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one. And that's a funny thing when you think of it. We're just babies making up a game, if you're right. But four babies playing a game can make a play world which licks your world hollow. That's why I'm going to stand by the play world. I'm on Aslan's side, even if there isn't any Aslan to lead it. I'm going to live as like a Narnian as I can, even if there isn't any Narnia. So thanking you kindly for our supper, if these two gentlemen and the young lady are ready, we're leaving your court at once and setting out in the dark to spend our lives looking for overland. Not that our lives will be very long, I should think, but that's a small loss if the world's a dull place, as you say. I love that. Puddleglum displays amazing, unwavering faith right here in what he believes to be true. And what I appreciate about Puddleglum's faith is that it's not at the expense of what he's seeing around him. Um, he, he, he hears the, the arguments that the witch is, is bringing forth, and he, he hears the apparent futility of his, and yet still he holds on to his faith in the face of adversity. And when it comes down to it, would his faith be proven true? And you'll have to read the rest of the story to find out. But not before you read the first five, before it, because they are worth it. But amazing and unwavering are two words that we're going to be using this morning in relation to faith. And I want to start with the latter, with unwavering. Unwavering, I believe, is an important word to associate with ideas of faith or its related words, belief or trust. All of these, I think, we can kind of intertwine together. And in the Old Testament, to hold unwavering faith is a common theme. Psalm 26, verses 1 to 3 says, Vindicate me, Lord, for I have led a blameless life. I have trusted in the Lord and have not faltered. Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind, for I have always been mindful of your unfailing love and have lived in reliance on your faithfulness. And in Proverbs, the reader is encouraged to let love and faithfulness never leave you. Behind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. Psalm 119 extols the virtue of faithfully following the law, following the word of God unwaveringly. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. And in the New Testament, that word of God is made what? Flesh in Jesus Christ. Our faith is placed in the one who did not come to abolish the law, but who came to fulfill it. And now, scattered throughout the Gospels, we find stories of people who place their faith in Jesus and stories of those who refuse to do so. And in both cases, the kinds of people who place their faith in Jesus or withhold it sometimes surprise us. And this is a theme that we've kept coming to as we've been looking at these encounters with Jesus. 
The people who shouldn't get who he is, the, the, the people who should be last to understand what Jesus is about are sometimes the very first ones to get it. And then likewise, the ones who should know who Jesus is or who should understand what he's talking about, who should be the first to say, I know the answer, Lord. I know what you're on about. They're the last ones to get it. And as we talk about faith today, we are looking at two stories that involve people who are outsiders, people who should not have understood what Jesus was all about. The first story we're looking at is the story of the faith of the centurion, which Reagan just read a few minutes ago. Let's recap that really quickly. Here's a Gentile, an outsider. But not only that, he's a member of the empire that's occupying Jewish territory. He's the kind of guy that would ride by you on a horse, and as he does, you tip your cap to him, and then as he goes past you, you spit on the ground afterwards. Okay? But right away, we learn there's something different about this guy. He comes to Jesus with a concern, and he's concerned for his servant, his slave. And that's really strange for that time. What was the usual relationship between a centurion and a slave? I came across some words written by Aristotle about the relationship between a master and a slave. Here's what Aristotle had to say. There can be no friendship toward inanimate things. Indeed, not even towards a horse or an ox, nor yet towards a slave as a slave. Aristotle has just compared a human life to a horse or an ox. Nice guy. For master and slave have nothing in common, he says. A slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. Nice. So in this day and age, if your slave is, quote-unquote, broken, if your servant is ill, what you usually do is put him outside the front door, or put her outside the front door, and you close the door, and you go down the market, and you buy a new one. That's about it. But this guy, this, this Gentile centurion, this outsider, is concerned for his slave. And so he comes to Jesus and, and he asks Jesus to help. And, and he gives this short explanation concerning authority and giving commands. And it blows Jesus' socks off. He is amazed at what this guy says. And we're left kind of going, what just happened here? Why? The servant is healed and everyone's happy. Okay, that's a quick recap of that story. We'll come back to that. There's another story of a Canaanite woman who comes to Jesus. Now, this time, Jesus is a bit of an outsider. He's on Gentile territory. He's had a little dust-up with the Pharisees. Now he's gone, and he's, not that he's lost it or anything, but he's gone to kind of have a few quiet moments, and this woman arrives, this Canaanite woman. So, her, to the, to the Jews, is not just an outsider. She is very much a, a capital P pagan, a descendant of ancient enemies of the Jews. And she comes and she calls out for Jesus. Jesus, my daughter, is being tormented by a demon. Please come and help. And she won't stop talking. She won't stop asking for help. And who can blame her? She has a mother's heart, concerned for her daughter. Now, this is one of those stories where I would love to hear the tones of voices that are being used. I'd love to hear what the disciples sounded like, because they're kind of, I wonder if they're just kind of like, Jesus, would you please just come and talk to this lady? 
would you please just come and maybe just heal her daughter so she'll go away? I don't know. I'd love to hear what they had to say there, what it sounded like. And it's a very interesting exchange because here Jesus comes off looking, you know, what word do I dare use? Um, A little insensitive, we'll use that. A little insensitive. He won't acknowledge her. So she yells louder. I love this lady. And then there's this exchange. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me. And he replies, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Do you hear that? That's every politically correct voice going, oh, no, he didn't. (laughs) He didn't just say that. Yes, he did. And she replies, she retorts, yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. And we're left going, what? (laughs) What just happened here? What are we missing in these two stories concerning faith? These, what, what connections? What connections are taking place here? And I think there are a few worth noting. In both stories, the person's faith appears to come through their understanding of who Jesus is. It appears to come through their understanding, rather, of his authority. This leads to another connection, one of healing. So these two ideas of authority and healing, let's explore these connections a little bit more. Let's start with faith through understanding of authority. What do we mean by that? Often when we think of the word authority, we think of power, be it good or bad. We may think of a person, a political party. We might think of a a police officer or someone who has the ability to make and or enforce laws or regulations, for one example. In the case of Jesus, his miracles spoke to his authority. So this paralytic gets lowered down in the midst of a crowd of people in a living room through the roof. And Jesus sees this fellow and he says, your sins are forgiven. And then the Pharisee sitting next to him stands up and freaks out and says, by what authority do you forgive sins? By what authority can you actually say that? And Jesus says, okay, take your mat, get up and walk. And the Pharisee goes, oh, by that authority. Okay, now I see. And so his miracles point to his authority. And the centurion would understand this kind of authority. Indeed, he does so at an even greater level. The centurion knows that any power that he has over his soldiers ultimately comes from the emperor, even more than himself. And so just as the centurion receives authority to issue commands from his superior, he recognized that Jesus receives his authority from the Father, the God of the Jews, Yahweh. This was the basis for the centurion's faith. And it astounded Jesus that he recognized so quickly not just the connection of authority from God, but the very fact that Jesus and God are connected in the first place. The Father and the Son. Something that so many people did not get. I think this is what amazes Jesus. As one commentator puts it, this implicit confession thus foreshadows Peter's declaration, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. What about the Canaanite woman? Would she have understood Jesus' authority the same way? 
Certainly, she's smart enough to see how authority works at the sight of all these Roman soldiers around her. <clears throat> That's a concept I'm sure that she would understand, but I don't think she ever operated under that authority, perhaps, quite the same way. So how might she have understood it? And this is where we look at the idea of authority from its root word, author. The idea that what someone says can be trusted because of who that person is. So for example, there's a dead tree in my backyard that needs to come down. And in the course of the day, an electrician, a plumber, a cook, and a ballet dancer stop by my home and they say, I noticed you had a dead tree in your backyard. Here's an estimate of what it's going to cost for you to take that down. I might be slightly suspicious of what they might know about taking down a dead tree. But if an arborist comes by and says, I noticed you had a dead tree. Here's an estimate of what it'll cost to take down. Then at that point, I might say, when can you start? You see what I mean, though? The arborist has the authority to make that call, much more so than the other group of people. It's kind of where we get this expression from, I have it on good authority. Is it any wonder that in Hebrews 12, we read about Jesus being the author and perfecter of our faith? And so as with this idea of authority in mind, as we go back to the Canaanite woman, as she addresses Jesus as son of David, she calls out to him, son of David. It would appear she does so understanding the messianic title. And no doubt understands then that the Messiah is one who heals. Jesus, please heal my daughter. More so, she appears to know enough about her Jewish, aunt, or her Jewish neighbor's beliefs that one day all nations will flock to Israel to worship the Lord Most High. What is first for the Jews will spill over for the Gentiles. Again, I wish we could hear the tone in Jesus' voice as he spoke to this woman. As she makes her request, he says, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. I don't believe that he's calling her a dog in the sense of the dogs that traveled in packs throughout the cities eating garbage or dead things on the side of the road. I think he's talking about the dogs that were more in the household, um, pets, if you will. Still very derogatory to us in our culture, but I think there's a playful banter going on here. It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. What will be first for the Jews will spill over for the Gentiles. You see, she has it on good authority that Jesus is one who will follow through due to his reliability and integrity. You add to that a mother's heart for her daughter, and we indeed have someone with amazing, unwavering faith. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Faith is connected to understanding of authority in these two stories. But in both stories, there is also this connection to healing. In both stories, the requests of the centurion and the Canaanite woman are granted. And the ones that they are um, intercessing for, if you will, to Jesus are healed. And this brought me to a question that stopped me quite a few times as I was preparing this word. This is where I struggled. Because it's a question that I'd rather leave very much alone. 
Does my faith, or lack thereof, affect healing today? And I dread to uh, admit my doubts to you because I feel like I should know what the right answer is as a Christian. But I'm not sure I do. And I dread to bring this up a little bit today because I know for many of us, the idea of pain or suffering or death is very real to us even today, even now. Um, is very real to us. I'm sure it's been real to us in all sorts of ways as we grow. It's just one of those things we deal with. And if you know Kate and mine's story, you know that we've dealt with it many times in our own way. But here's the thing. I dare not to bring it up because these struggles, I, I dare not to bring up these struggles because we are talking about faith. And these things affect our faith. And if we can't talk about these doubts here in the safety of the body of Christ, I don't know if that's such a good thing. Because I'm willing to bet I'm not the only one who struggles with this from time to time. So let's talk about it. As I'm preparing this, these questions start popping up that I try and bed back down. Just kind of get that out of the way. And they keep popping up. And I'm like, well, Lord, okay. If it's going to keep coming up, then let's look into it. And here's what some of these questions were. Why doesn't Jesus heal today? The way we see in the Gospels? And that leads to another question. Well, who's to say he doesn't? I don't know about all of you, but I'm not aware of all the sick people or all the injured people in the entire world. And I'm not aware of what God is doing in each and every one of those people's lives. So who's to say that he doesn't? Which made me think then, well, did he heal everybody back in the day? As he's walking through, everybody that he passes by, you're healed, you're healed, you're healed, you're healed. Is this what happens? There are some accounts where we kind of see this. People are just, you get this idea that there's a huge line of people just kind of coming through and, and he's, he's taking care of them. But did he really heal everybody back in the day? And if not, does that mean he loved those other people less? You see why I was afraid to talk about some of these questions? <laughs> oh, some of you are like, I really don't know where he's going with this. Lord, help me. I don't know either. Here we go. But I think it's a fair question. If Jesus healed that paralytic, then what about the other one over there? If he raised that child from the dead, what about the little boy or the little girl who didn't be healed in that sense? And here's where I arrived at. Here's where I came to, and, and I invite you to come talk to me afterwards and tell me if you agree or disagree. There is zero indication that he healed everyone that he passed by. We know from Scripture that he took time to just do normal things, to sleep, to eat, and to play. Jesus could not have healed everyone that he came into contact with, I believe. Now, that gets us in a tricky place because when we use words like Jesus and could not, we get really nervous, don't we? But I, would, I, I came to this, this conclusion. It was not humanly possible for Jesus to heal all the people that he came across. Not humanly possible. But Jesus was not just a man. He is, however, the Son of God. Amen? So what did all the miracles point to? If not Jesus' authority over all things. 
And what did all of this lead to in the end? It led to the cross. And so to heal eyes and ears and hands and feet, that's one thing. To heal someone's broken heart or hardened heart, that's another. But our Jesus hung upon the cross and rose again to heal the greatest infliction that ever came across to to humanity. And that is our separation to God. Amen? All that he did as a man here on earth pointed the way to something much, much greater. Just as the centurion and the Canaanite woman, just as those stories pointed the way to something even greater, that this message of the gospel, that this kingdom is for all, not just the Jews, for all, so did the miracles point to something much, much greater than just what we saw or what we read about in the Gospels. Through his death and resurrection, we are healed from sin and brought into reconciliation with God the Father. Do we remember these things when we struggle in the moment with pain and with suffering and with death? And I do not say that to trivialize what anyone experiences in the now. I do say that as a great encouragement of a way of remembering the greater promise at hand. Or let me put it another way. Isn't it something that the healings that took place in these stories take place at a distance? Jesus doesn't go to these people. He just speaks the word and they are healed. He doesn't lay hands. He doesn't touch. He doesn't spit, breathe, or slap a single person on the forehead. He just says the words and they are healed. And this is significant. This doesn't happen very often in the Bible. Once in the Gospel of Mark with the account of the Canaanite woman, and twice in the Gospel of Matthew with these two accounts right here. And all of them involving Gentiles, interestingly enough. Here's why I get excited about this. If Jesus can heal by distance of geography, then it tells me he can also heal by the distance of time. Does that make sense? that he can heal by the distance of geography. He can also heal through the distance of time. And that is exactly what is happening and what will happen when we look at the bigger picture of the ultimate healing that we see through the cross. We were talking this morning in class about the Gospel of Mark, how it looks so futile (laughs) so often, especially the account of of, um, Jesus' death. It looks so futile, but then we get these seeds of hope church, let this be the seed of hope in those moments when it looks incredibly futile. Remember the cross and remember the greater promises that are coming. May we have the amazing unwavering faith to see the promises of God come to pass. If not in our time, then in our children's time. And if not in their time, then their children's time. Even if it takes another 2,000 years for Christ to return, may we have that amazing unwavering faith to see us through until we see him face to face. For in the meantime, our faith is what is described in Hebrews, confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. There's something very cool, I think, about Jesus' reactions to these two people in these stories. I like the idea very much that Jesus could be amazed, perhaps surprised even, I like that idea. 
Again, only twice in the Gospels do we see this happen. Once in Matthew with the story of the centurion where he's amazed at his faith. And once in Mark where he's amazed for the exact opposite reason. Which is amazing. If you think about all the awesome stories that we've been looking at in Mark recently, we've looked at the healing of the demoniac. Um, in a side way, we've looked at um, where Jesus calms the storm on the lake. We've looked at how he heals the woman who was bleeding. She reaches out and touches his cloak. We've looked at um, how he raises um, the, the, the woman's daughter from the dead. And then in Mark chapter 6, Jesus goes to his hometown, to his own people, his own family and friends, his tribe. And they cannot see him as anything more than just Jesus of Nazareth, just the son of a carpenter. And in verse 6 we read, and he was amazed at their lack of faith. And so here's Jesus, amazed by faith, amazed at the lack of faith. And we get a sense of this in his response to the centurion's faith. After his exclamation of amazing amazement concerning the centurion's faith, a Gentile no less, Jesus makes this stunning statement to those who lack faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west. Many will come from outside Israel and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom, those that deserve to be there, will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Wow. So we have some good news. Outsiders get a chance to sit at the table. But we have some bad news. The insiders, those who believe they deserve to be there just from their own merits rather than faith, will be thrown out. And understand that Jesus isn't describing just any banquet here. This isn't just any supper time. He's talking about the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a messianic banquet. This is what the Jews have been waiting for. But never in a million years would they ever have thought that a Gentile would be allowed to sit at that table as well. Jesus is saying, don't you see? Faith doesn't give you a place in a lineup behind a whole bunch of people. Faith does get you a seat at the table. And we get to dine with the king. So this morning, church, where's your faith at? Is it brimming over the top? If it is, be sure to share it with those around you. Not just out in the world, but with those around you even here. Because you never know whose faith may be faltering. You think about all the things that God has done in your life. You think about maybe some of the uh, seemingly trivial things that God has done in your life. That story might just be a lifeline to the person sitting next to you this morning. It may just prove to them that God is still healing through the distance of time. He's still at work in the lives of his children. And for those whose faith is faltering this morning, do not despair. Rather, take courage to share that with someone. All too often, people leave the church because they've had this 
this faith of theirs that has been questioned. They've been questioning their faith or they've questioned some aspect of faith that they've never been able to reconcile. They've never shared it with somebody. And weeks and months and years go by and bit by bit, your faith becomes brittle. And they, and they, they just go. They've never once shared it with someone. Or worse yet, perhaps they shared it, but it was never heard. So this morning, if someone shares with you that they are faltering in their faith, Listen to them. Listen to them. Don't feel you have to solve it. Well, we better open up the Bible and get to the right scripture right away and figure this out. Listen to them. Don't judge them. But listen to them. And then love them and pray with them and be there for them. If God can handle their doubts, so should we. Amen. Worship team, do you want to come back up? I admire Puddleglum's amazing, unwavering faith. I admire the way he holds to it in the face of dire adversity. And more so, I admire the centurion and the Canaanite woman for their faith. It speaks to me encouragement. And it points to me, it points me towards the one, sorry. It points me towards the one. Jesus Christ, who can take our faith as small as it is, and he can grow it and grow it and grow it. And he can use his church to grow that faith and grow it and grow it and grow it into something awesomely huge. What Jesus says can move a mountain. So take encouragement from that this morning, church. And trust me on it, because I have it on very good authority. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we believe this morning. Help us in our unbelief. Strengthen us, Lord God, in a world that so often challenges our faith. May we not be fearful of that, Lord. May we rather come closer and closer to you day by day and to your word that our faith may be strengthened, Lord Jesus, through the power of your Holy Spirit to live that faith daily in the world and as a body of believers together. Help us to hear one another, Lord, when we struggle. Help us to help one another, Lord God, out of love for each other that spills out from our love for you. We love you, Lord, this morning, and we bless you. And I thank you for this time together. In Jesus' most holy name we pray. Amen.